Every time I think again about those trials that he went through, six trials in the middle of the night, into the early morning hours, what always comes back to my mind is those words of Pilate that just ring throughout history. Pilate's wife had warned him, this is a righteous man. He had interrogated himself and found no guilt in him. Jesus himself had told him the truth. And he knew that he was guilty of nothing. He found no guilt in him by his own admission. But looking at the political landscape and understanding the situation at hand, it just wasn't politically correct for him to do anything else. The crowd is threatening to riot and Passover week, no less. All of the Roman Empire is watching Jerusalem during this week. This is his moment, Pilate's moment to shine. And it's about to get out of hand. He knows that Caesar is watching. He understands that if he messes this up, it's going to cost him big time. On the one hand, he has the truth. On the other hand, he has the pressure to ignore the truth. And giving in to the pressure, he says, I've washed my hands of this. And he turns him over to be crucified. And those words ring in my ears. What is truth? Sarcastically, facetiously, he shrugs his shoulders to Jesus and he says, he says you talk of truth, but, but there's a truth in that crowd's eyes. There's a truth in my superior's eyes, there's a truth in my wife's eyes, there's a, there, there, everybody's got an opinion about the truth. How am I supposed to know the truth? Don't talk to me about truth. Nobody knows the truth. That attitude sound familiar? Boy, we see that in our culture today, don't we? Who could possibly know the truth? Who could possibly know these, these enduring absolutes that religion claims to put forth. And by the way, one religion says one thing is the absolute truth and another equally committed group of religious people says, no, no, something else is the absolute truth. And then there's another group that says it's the absolute truth. All of these gods being worshipped by all of these people, all of them sure they're worshipping the right God. And our culture says, come on now, how are we supposed to choose? How are we supposed to know the truth? We can't know the truth. And so because we can't know the truth, we're going to wash our hands of this whole religious question. We're just not interested. Go and do your own religious thing. That's your thing. I'll have my thing and we'll let, we'll let it all work out in the end. I, I don't know the truth. We live in a society that, while on the one hand, not sure there is any truth, on the other hand, can't seem to agree on what truth there might be. Everybody's got an opinion. I mean, if you don't realize that everybody in our culture has an opinion, you probably didn't watch the inauguration this week or the events that followed it or pay any attention to the news or social media in the aftermath of it. And it's not just about politics. It's about everything. It seems like no matter what you say or do these days, you are bound to offend somebody. If it's not a political debate, it's a religious debate. 
And if it's not a religious debate, it's a philosophical debate. And if there's no actual debate going on, there's just tension. I mean, real tension between people, tension between economic classes, tension between races, tension between the sexes, tension within families, tension in communities. Nobody can seem to agree on very much, and everybody's offended. And, and we see certain people that hold these opinions that we really can't stand, and we dread being with those people, and, and when we can, we unfriend them. And, and others we just lose respect for. We talk behind their back, find others that agree with us, and talk about how ridiculous they are, whoever they are. And we just stop listening. We dismiss people out of hand. Some, some people deal with the issue by just yelling louder their version of the truth. But more and more we see people just getting fed up with the whole discussion, shrugging their shoulders and joining Pilate and saying, what is truth? Don't give me this hassle about figuring out the truth. A lot of people today, especially young people, just throwing their hands in the air. And said, I, I'm not even going to go down that road. And, and you know what? Maybe instead of arguing about the truth, maybe we could all just stop arguing, they say. And how about if we just be nice to one another? Wouldn't that be better? If we could just let these things that divide us go away and agree not to talk about them? They stop trying to figure out what the truth is. And a lot of us have sort of, instead of grappling with hard questions, we just choose our camp. And then we let the loudest voice in our camp speak for us, and we don't really have to worry about anything. We, we don't know very much for sure. We just know which camp we're in, and we know the people in the other camp are idiots, and we just leave it at that. And Pilate's question rings in my ears throughout all of history, what, if anything, is truth? And by the way, does it even matter? It's a good question, because especially since we established in the last couple of weeks that there is a dramatic, desperate need for grace in our society, maybe it would make sense to just stop worrying about these divisive ideas and philosophies and religious notions that separate us so much. Maybe the gracious thing to do is stop being so concerned about the truth and just be nice to people. But then I think of Jesus... And I think about the way he's described in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the scripture tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we've been holding up this picture of Jesus from John 1:14 and saying, He's not like you think he is. He's actually full of grace and full of truth. At the same time, he doesn't choose one or the other. He never puts one on the shelf so he can focus on the other. He doesn't compromise one for the other. But in every single moment, he is full of truth. And in every single moment, he's full of grace. And no one you know is like that except Jesus. And this strange thing is that the scripture says we're supposed to be like him. So we can't just shrug our shoulders and say what is truth. We can't just pass it off and say, I'm just going to be nice to people and not worry about the truth. We can't just pound our Bibles and tell people the truth without offering them grace. Somehow, 
We have to be like Jesus. It's true that people are starving for grace today. I think we've established that. It's also true that people are starving for truth. And we can't hold back one for the other. I want you to take your Bibles and go to the book of 2 Timothy. New Testament, probably two-thirds of the way through the New Testament. You're going to find the book of 2 Timothy right after the book of 1 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul saw this coming. Apparently, this is not a new problem. Listen to what he says. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He's writing to his protege, Timothy, who is pastoring a church and is struggling with this very question of, of, of grace and truth. How do I find my way to speaking the truth but really meeting needs? And Timothy is a timid man, and it makes him uncomfortable to confront or, or make others uncomfortable. And so here's what Paul says to him, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Let's just stop there for a second. Do you, do you, do you find that to be a rather weighty charge? Like imagine if you were telling your son to take out the trash. And you said to him, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Take out the trash. <laughs> right? He's setting him up. He's going, listen, I'm not kidding here. What I'm about to tell you, Timothy, you're probably not going to like. It's not going to be comfortable for you. It's going to take you out of your comfort zone. But I'm telling you, in the name of Jesus Christ, who will judge you one day, you must do what I'm about to tell you. And here's what he says. Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul says, listen, the day is coming soon, Timothy, when you're going to be dealing with people who are infiltrating your very city and they're going to be preaching and they're going to be teaching a false gospel and, and people are going to flock to them because some of the things that Jesus has to say to us are very hard to hear. Some of the standards that Jesus sets for us, frankly, not only do we not want to try to achieve them, but they don't even make sense to us sometimes. And there are going to be people, he tells Timothy, who would rather hear what makes them feel better now than what makes them actually experience abundant life. And they're going to gather around these teachers, and they're going to flock after these teachers, and they are going to want to hear whatever makes them feel better. And this appetite for ear-tickling has continued to be a real problem. It wasn't just a problem in the first century. It is a huge problem today. Even in the church. Dare I say, especially in the church. And, and let me just be uh, transparent with you for a second and speak to you and tell you that I can understand this. Because as a pastor... I would certainly rather stand up here today and not see a single empty seat in the room. I would much rather 
there were people banging on the door trying to get in for standing room only to hear what we were preaching than to, than to look out and go, gosh, where is everybody? And every preacher I know feels that way. And so it, the temptation exists to just sort of water down the presentation, to sort of avoid some of the passages that we know are very awkward and uncomfortable for people in our culture. We're not going to talk to people about things like sin and hell and repentance. We're not going to grapple with issues of morality and sexuality. We're not going to talk to people about living sacrificially and, and laying down their lives and picking up their cross and all of those things that we find all over the, the words of Scripture. We're just going to didact the passages that offend people. And we're going to talk about love and kindness and heaven and all the things that people love to hear. And, and if that doesn't do it, we'll take things right out of context and twist them and make them say things they were never intended to say. One of the easiest examples to come up with that is prevalent still in our society today is what has become known as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel sells in Beverly Hills and it sells in the streets of Kenya and it sells in, in the high-rises of Hong Kong, and it sells in the slums of El Salvador. And it's the same thing. A couple of verses here and there about riches, and we make it, the Bible say, that what God wants most for you is that you would live this life right now without pain, without suffering, without illness, without poverty, without difficulty, and instead you will be endowed with every material thing you could ever want right now. You just have to have enough faith. You just have to demonstrate enough faith. And of course, if you want to know how to demonstrate that faith, there will be a P.O. box on the, on the screen. You write your checks to them, and it will show God how faithful you are. And that prosperity gospel sells among the poor even more strongly than it sells among the rich. And, and, and how easy is it to stand up and do that? I mean, there's a lot of guys preaching that message and flying in private jets today. And people like it. They gather around, tickle my ears, tell me what I want to hear. But in the end, whether it's me or any other preacher, our success as a preacher is not determined by the size of the crowd, but by the level of our faithfulness to preach the real Word of God and whether He's pleased when we do. And so many preachers are just telling people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And false preachers are not the whole problem. They're not even most of the problem because more and more people in our culture are not listening to preachers, whether they're on television, the radio, the internet, or in church buildings. Most people are simply not listening to preachers anymore. Instead, we listen to television shows. We, we turn on our television and we get an onslaught of worldly ideas that never seems to stop. And it doesn't matter whether we're watching a news program, whether we're watching a documentary, whether we're watching the Science Channel, whether we're watching a sitcom, or whatever it is that we're watching, we are slowly being spoon-fed the world's philosophy, and we're just gobbling it up like so many babies. Social media, anyone can post anything without an editor. Fake news is a real problem. People's opinions that go out there and they're just rhetorical, 
they haven't even been considered. People who are not qualified to comment on the subject are often the ones shouting the, large, the loudest. And the arguments go on. And it's not just in the media, and it's not just in social media. It is in the classrooms. From preschool to graduate school, classrooms are filled with students who oftentimes are hearing from many of their professors and instructors and preschool teachers that there is no reasonable way to believe that there is a God, that everything that we actually can know is scientific and must be proven, and any philosophy that talks about an Uh, A supernatural being is just so much fantasy. And people are growing up on that. And our friends influence us. Falsehood is everywhere. And people are swallowing it all the time without even realizing it. And the darkness of this world is just sucking it in. It is darkness. But let us never forget, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, said that his followers shall be the light of the world as well. We're meant to be the light in the midst of the darkness. Jesus, the light of the world, full of grace and full of truth. And as his followers, we should be too. Of course, people are offended by biblical doctrines that call them to admit their sin, that call them to turn from their wickedness, that call them to sacrifice themselves, that call them to live for eternal purposes rather than um, temporary fulfillment. Of course people don't like to hear that. It's very difficult to hear. It's difficult for me to hear. But the answer is not simply to recognize that they don't want to hear it, so let's just be nice to them and don't give it to them. So I want you to picture this. It's a little hard to picture in our suburban community here, but but just picture that we live a little more in a slightly more rural area. And you live in a house that's on a few acres and, and you know, the, one of those places where backyards don't have fences. And, and, and out about a quarter of a mile into your back property, the train tracks pass through. And, and your little five-year-old boy just loves that backyard. And he plays out there all the time. And he loves to take his bucket of little green army men and set them up and have them have their duels against one another. And the best place for him to do it is right in the train tracks where they have little barricades that they can hide behind called rails. And he loves to take his sister's Barbie dolls and strap them to the train tracks (laughs) and see if the dashing young G.I. Joe will save them in time. And he's out there just having the time of his life with his earbuds in, listening to some Barney song that he loves and can't stop singing. And he's just having the time of his life. And you are standing at the sink washing dishes and looking out the window and watching him have a time of his life. And your smile on your face is just awesome. It's a great day until you notice just a puff of smoke that rises above the trees in the distance. And you realize the train's coming. Soon you can feel it. It's a normal shaking that you feel. You look at your son and he's just got his earbuds in and he is just rocking out, sitting right in the middle of the train tracks with his back to the train and he has no idea what's happening. What do you do? Do you say to yourself, hey look, he's having fun. It'd be a shame to interrupt his playtime. He's going to be mad if I bother him. He's having the time of his life. Is that what you do? No, 
you bust out the back door and in full sprint, waving your arms and shouting at the top of your lungs, you tell them a train's coming, a train's coming. And as you get closer and closer and the train gets closer and closer, if necessary, you will dive in front of the train yourself to push him out of the way. Will you not, parents? Because love demands that we give people the truth they need rather than let them sit in the falsehood that destroys them. We can't just leave them alone. It's not love if we do. So it's not about grace or truth. Neither one is enough by itself. Grace without truth is license. Truth without grace is legalism. And Jesus condemned both. It's about grace and truth. We never need to compromise one for the other. Jesus never did. And people were drawn to him like moths are drawn to a light. So if people are going to be offended by the truth of God's word, if people are going to be offended by the standards of Jesus himself, then so be it, let them be offended. But let's not let them be offended by those of us who are supposed to represent the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. If it's us who is offending them and not the truth of Jesus, we got off track somewhere. Either we went to the one side of legalism or went to the other side of license. But either way, we're in deep trouble. And by the way, trying to offer them what they want isn't attractive to them anyway because it's already offered to them out there in many kinds of places. We need to offer them what only Jesus offers them. There's a great um, book by Dr. James Emery White called The Rise of the Nuns, and he talks a lot about these issues. And he, he kind of put together a, a table, if you will, a, a quadrant of um, a picture of this grace and truth problem. And I sort of stole it from him and made my own version of it, and I put it up on the screen for you. If you look here on the top left, this is grace, lots of grace, but no truth. And an example of that would be like the Unitarian Universalist thing. Um, some sort of a religious system where no one is going to hold you accountable to live in any certain way. You're going to be accepted as you are and nobody's going to hassle you about it. But you're still going to have fellowship and you're still going to have some pseudo-religious services and you're still going to have church potlucks on Sunday afternoons and you're going to do all the things that people like about church without the parts that people don't like about church. I have a friend. Um, I've known him since we were five. He's the most staunch, aggressive atheist I know. He spends a ton of time using the internet as a tool to bash anyone who is a follower of God, particularly Christians. His, his motto is basically this, there is no God and I hate him. That's pretty much it. And, and Recently, and because I try to keep this friendship alive, um, I noticed that he joined the Unitarian Universalist Church, and now he brags about it. He is still an atheist, but now he has religion. All grace, zero truth. We don't need to offer him something like that. It's already being offered. If you look at the next quadrant, no grace, no truth. Very, very little grace, very, very little truth. We find this in things like Hinduism and Buddhism, which is really just an offshoot of Hinduism. 
And, and the issue with these religions is karma, right? What you put out is what comes back. There, there's no concern about what's going to happen in the afterlife. There's not really a belief in afterlife. Instead, it's this continuous wheel of life. We keep being reincarnated. And basically, what we do in this life will determine what our next life is like. So if you are a dirtbag in this life, you will come back as a cockroach or something. And, and the deal is, there's absolutely no grace. You get what you deserve. That's the teaching of Hinduism and the philosophy of Buddhism. It's all truth. I mean, no truth and no grace. Then in this quadrant, we see another one. No grace, but tons of so-called truth or dogma, if you will. That's Islam. In Islam today, there are absolute unmovable rules. There's an absolutely clear definition of God, who He is and what He wants. And He will not change and He will not bend for you. And you will not receive any grace for Him. Your only chance is to do the right thing that He wants you to do to follow their version of truth. And the further that you follow it, the more impressed He will be and the better your eternity will be. There is no grace. It's all about their version of truth. And that's why radical Islamic terrorists have no problem blowing themselves up because they are taking the most radical approach to following the truth and they think that that will get them into the good, good will of their deity. That's Islam. Do you see the point? We don't need to offer a version of spirituality that is full of grace but has no truth. We don't need to offer a version that has no grace and no truth. We don't need to offer a version that has no grace but a lot of truth. Jesus comes and uniquely says, I am full of grace and full of truth. And that, my friends, is what people are starving for. So can we just agree to stop selling this stuff? This watered-down version of Christianity that doesn't have much truth to it but a lot of grace? Can we just agree to stop selling a version of Christianity that is all about dogma and offers no grace at all? Can we agree to stop selling a version of Christianity that is devoid of grace or truth and just has you finding your own way? Good luck. We wish you the best. And can we get back to the biblical picture and say Jesus came to testify to the truth that we would know him, be transformed by his grace, and live according to his truth? That's what people are actually hungry for. And if they're not getting it, it's because they're not getting it from God's people. As Christians, we really have something wonderful to offer thirsty people. We have Jesus. Can we get back to that? Full of grace, full of truth. And people flocked to him. And many followed him because they were drawn to his grace and truth. And by the way, Many rejected him because they were offended by his grace and truth. The, the, the Pharisees rejected him because of his grace. The rich young ruler rejected him because of his truth. People will reject him. And by the way, they will also reject us if we're full of grace and truth. But he said that his servants need to be like him. So let me just give you a little word to the wise. 
something is wrong if all unbelievers hate us. If everybody you know who's not a believer is just like disgusted with you and doesn't want to be around you and always feels judged and all that kind of stuff, something is wrong. It means you've forgotten grace. And by the way, on the other hand, something is also wrong if all unbelievers love us and can't wait to hang out with us. Because they don't feel ever in any situation like what they do might be called into question even by our behavior, if not by our words. If that's the case and they just love being around us, the chances are we have so watered down the gospel that we've forgotten truth. But if we accurately portray grace and truth, some will be drawn to Him through us. And some will choose to reject Him in spite of our efforts. And they might reject us too. Honestly, I can live with that. What I can't live with is if they reject Him because of us. I can't live with it if they reject the actual gospel because those who carry the gospel dilute it, either with their words or with their lives. So how do we change the world's perception of Christianity we start living among them as much like our Savior as we possibly can. Not everyone will come, but some will. At least then, if they reject Him, they're rejecting the actual Jesus and not some caricature of Jesus that His so-called followers have drawn. But here's the deal, guys, and this is where it gets practical and personal. The closer that you walk with Him, the more you will look like Him. You, you may be thinking, well, I know I'm, I'm definitely a, a grace person. I'm way on the grace side. I don't even really read my Bible. I don't know much about the truth, and, and I'm just a grace person. What am I going to do? I guess I better start a Bible study. Well, that might be a great idea, but, but that's not going to solve the problem. You need to become like Him, and you will become like Him as you draw near to Him and let Him speak into your life and walk intimately with Him. You may be a truth person and you're like, you know what, I really don't care how much that person is hurting. They're offending God, therefore they're offending me, and I want to hurt Him some more. I'm going to hit Him right in the head with my Bible. That may be you. And you may be thinking, well, okay, I guess I'll volunteer at a soup kitchen. Don't. Do this instead. Devote yourself to prayer. Read the Gospels and see Jesus for who He is. The Gospel of John is a beautiful picture of this. Get to know His grace and let His grace permeate your own life so that as you walk intimately with Him, people will experience Him because they met you. And then the other thing you have to do after you get to know Jesus a little better is you need to get to know people a little better so you'll have someone to rub off on. And you need to reject the notion that says, I'm just going to live really nicely so they'll be attracted to Jesus, but I'm not going to confront anybody or talk to them about the truth. And you need to reject the notion that says, I'm going to stand on a street corner with a megaphone telling you you're going to burn in hell if you don't do what I tell you to do. You've got to reject that approach as well. And instead, you've got to get to know people and actually love them. And when you actually love them, they see Jesus in you. By the way, when you interview lost people who have rejected Christianity because of the people that they associate with it, they almost always say the same thing. 
when I'm around Christians, I feel like I'm a project, not a person. I feel like I'm just like someone they're trying to win into their business. It's like a multi-level marketing thing. And I just want to stay away. Guys, we have to not see them as projects. Remember what the scripture says. Why did God send his son? Because he so loved the world. We need to love people. And let the grace and the truth flow from Jesus to us, to them. And as that happens, we're going to let people see the real Jesus. He is full of grace. He is full of truth. What are you full of? 